0: Standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to the standard issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and yesterday I went to see London's traditional Christmas slugs. Where are they? (laughs) They're all over Tate Britain. Tate Britain is covered in bioluminescent slime and it is well good.
1: Mm.
2: I'm Hannah Dunleavy and this week I saw a bit of I'm a Celebrity. And it actually made me vomit. Too much Noel. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, funnily that. No, it was uh, it was the lovely John Barryman just just bent over, just reaching up some. Just no, I can't. No, oh, okay. she's
0: boaking. She's boaking live. <laughs> On a
3: related note, Hannah, I'm Jen Offord, and I don't think the British public deserves democracy anymore. And do you know why I think that? Is it because Noel Edmonds got voted out first? Unbelievable. But that doesn't oh
2: surprise me in the slightest. What is wrong with people? Well, they're because the people who vote on oh, no, I'm a Celebrity, are young people. And young people don't know who the fuck Noel Edmonds is. I don't is. know that they
3: are. I would have thought they'd be a bit older.
0: I've got to say, if Kay Burley was here, thank fuck she isn't, but she would see the sadness in Jen's eyes.
3: <laughs> I thought he was
2: really
0: annoying. That's exactly why you keep him in. Maybe those voters of Noel Edmonds need to keep listening to the podcast because later on we chat the importance of kindness <laughs> with comedian Juliet Burton. I talked to Irish authors Sarah Breen and Emma MacLysat
2: about being publishing sensations, adapting a book for the screen and why it's important
0: to be Ashling.
3: I chat to Kelly Simmons, director of the Women's Professional Game at the Football Association and Reading and England player Farrah Williams.
0: But first, budget tonsils, radiant penises and getting fucked in the eye hole. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where we are always very legal and very cool.
3: Big news from Chancellor Philip Hammond this week, is he announced there are no scenarios in which the UK could leave the EU and be financially better off. No, you shut up. Or, I guess if you prefer the BBC's version of events, the UK will be financially worse off, but only by a bit. Because that's the most important thing, we're only fucking ourselves over a little bit. Like in the ear hole instead of the eye socket, we only chose to make ourselves a weeny bit worse off. Still, we do get that sweet,
0: sweet buzz of keeping taxpaying foreigners out, so it'll probably all be worth it. I'm just so very, very, very tired. And Shadow Brexit Secretary Keir Starmer has confirmed that Brexit fatigue is real. No. But the shit show must go on. And Labour has finally, well, you know, done something by backing a cross-party bid to ensure the UK cannot leave the EU without a deal. Holly, fucking lulia And well done, Hilary Benn, for tabling an amendment to December the 11th's Commons vote on the PM's Brexit deal that rejects May's deal, opposes no deal and keeps all options on the table.
2: Yes, Labour edges ever so close to actually (laughs) saying something about Brexit, which is great if not just because it means people might stop misquoting Napoleon to excuse the opposition party's apparent coma on the biggest issue facing our country in our lifetime. To be clear, never interrupt your enemy when he is making a mistake means if the opposing army has dug its shitting ditches right next to its only source of clean water, don't rush over and give them a PowerPoint presentation on how diseases spread. It doesn't mean... Let the Tories
3: crap into the nation's cooking pot. Great news, though, guys. Jeremy Corbyn and Teabag have agreed to take part in a televised debate on the issue, presumably so they can battle it out to take credit for who wants to leave the EU the most. Or perhaps maybe over whether we go for the ear or the eye hole. I don't know. (laughs) Seems like a solid use of everyone's time to me. Come on, guys. Even the sun isn't sure if it wants this anymore. Just give us another fucking vote. Look
2: at this TV thing. I just. We're going to watch a woman arguing for something that she doesn't want and a man arguing against something that he does want. And at the end, none of us get a say in it. I know. What
1: is the fucking point?
0: And in the meantime, Tory resignations over Brexit hit double figures as Science and Universities Minister Sam Geemer handed in his notice saying a row over involvement in the EU's Galileo satellite navigation system shows the UK will be hammered in negotiations over a Brexit deal. Luckily for May, human flannel Michael Gove came to her defence by stating mutinous Tories will put Brexit at risk with another referendum if they vote down her plan. As if he genuinely believes that Bojo, Rees-Mogg and associated cronies actually give a shit about anything but their egos and throw in May under the liar-liar-bums-on-fire bus. And also as if a people's vote was a bad thing.
2: Meanwhile, the UK gaming industry, which apparently brings £2 billion to our economy every year, who knew, became the latest in a long line of industries to say, now, mate, we're fucked, (laughs) in response to the idea of a no-deal Brexit. Jazz Paulwell, a digital entertainment lawyer, said in a report he authored, and I quote, UK interactive entertainment will be harmed by a hard Brexit and devastated in a no-deal Brexit. He added, it would affect everything from recruitment to overseas sales. And I'm going to assume UK sales, because I'm guessing roaming ghost towns in a post-apocalyptic landscape looking for supplies
0: loses its appeal a bit when you had to do that just to get a pint of milk. (laughs) Yeah, because there is not going to be any escape. Just this week, Sajid David could be heard on Radio 4 proudly saying the government will bring a complete end to freedom of Mm -hmm. movement. Which is chilling enough, without pointing out, that means doors are slam shut on British people too. So we get to work in 27 less countries and other people get to work in one less country.
3: Well, that showed them, didn't it?
0: <laughs> Finally, a result we can all get behind. He also admitted it's very unlikely the immigration white paper outlining the government's immigration plans post-Brexit will be published before the Meaningful Vote. It's not going to be out before December the 11th. And it's, it's really, really hard to broadcast when you've got your head in your hands. Yeah.
3: Did you see her letter in which she said the wording of it was something like, it will bring about the end of freedom of movement once and for all, or something like that. Hooray! And just like, what do, that's got some pretty Third Reich-y connotations, yeah. hasn't it? Like, I know it's semantics, but it's quite important, isn't it? Well, to be fair to the third break, they, they actually wanted to be more part of Europe, didn't they? <laughs> I mean, they were all over that, weren't they? And while we're on the subject of racism, a report published last week by business consultancy organisation Equality Group found, perhaps unsurprisingly, ethnic minorities are losing out when it comes to career prospects in the UK. According to the report, 55% of ethnic minority Brits' surveys were told to be more realistic about their career prospects and a further 46 were advised to pursue a career not relevant to their skills or interests. Now, in fairness, at my school, I was told, despite being in the top set for everything, that I'd be lucky to get five GCSEs and my brother was advised that his skill set would suit a career in dog grooming. Never owned a dog. (laughs) Never owned a dog. So there may be some wider issues about careers advice in the UK. Though with the research launched as industry data revealed only 84 of the 1,048 directors of FTSE 100 companies originate from an ethnic minority and that there are more directors called Dave or Steve than there are women or ethnic minorities, clearly there are reasons for concern.
0: Oh. A little bit of light relief. So uh, penis facials are a thing, apparently. And I don't mean that in the awful porno cum shot sense. No, celebs are going gaga and indeed goo goo for a facial that involves the foreskins of circumcised babies. Oh dear. Jesus H. Christ. Does anyone have a direct line to the four horsemen? It is absolutely time. The science. Epidermal growth factor serum is derived from the progenitor cells of the human fibroblasts taken from the foreskins of newborn babies. When this delicious cocktail, which incidentally smells exactly like sperm, is injected into the face of a person, I know, Kate Beckinsale, say, or Sandra Bullock, it helps generate collagen and elastin, which can help boost radiance. Mm. Is anyone else hungry? I'm bored of experts, to be honest, Mick.
2: So this is something that Kate Beckinsale... um Sandra Bullock have done. Anyway.
0: And Kate Blanchett, she's in the list as well, yeah. it's a, If you're curious, I can see you're keen to get involved, Hannah, I have to let you know there is a two-year waiting list. It is £500 a pop and it is excruciatingly painful. <laughs> um,
2: well, anyone got some time on their hands? Sure. Mm. Well, maybe you can volunteer them at your local hospital. As part of a grand scheme to relieve pressure on frontline NHS staff concocted by those staunch defenders of the nation's health and wellbeing, the government and the Daily Mail. Well, I'm on board then. Mm. Natch. Although I suppose it's probably not surprising. A campaign to recruit enthusiastic amateurs brought to you by the people that bought you <laughs> Brexit. What could possibly go wrong? Oh. I, for one, welcome the idea of having my tonsils removed <laughs> by a retired accountant who <laughs> likes to keep busy. There's bound to be a YouTube tutorial. It'll be fine. I said it'll be fine. <laughs>
3: Oh, um, would anyone like some good news? Oh, yes, please. Okie dokie. Nine-year-old Riley Morrison might have been surprised last week when she received a letter from NBA superstar Stephen Curry. Riley had written to the Golden State Warriors player after being disappointed to find that Curry's brand of Under Armour trainers, the Curry Fives... The Curry's (laughs) Fives sound
2: like a bunch of people who broke in (laughs) to a branch of Curry's in the mid-80s and ended up on terrorism
3: charges and have now been released from prison after a very long time. For legal reasons, I'll reiterate, it's a pair of trainers. Okay. <laughs> uh, and they had been listed under the boys' section of the website and not the girls'. Napa resident Riley took Curry to task over the discrepancy, stating she knows that Curry supports girl athletes because he has daughters and has previously been vocal about women's rights and equal pay in sport. And she added that she hoped that he'd be able to sort the problem out as girls want to rock the Curry Fives too.
0: They were very important in that campaign Absolutely. to get them freed from prison.
3: Absolutely. <laughs> Wouldn't have got freedom Can we get them the in? Girls. Were any of them women? Yeah, let's get them in. Damn straight. Of course they want to rock the Curry Fives. Anyway, Riley will no doubt have been pleased with Curry's response that he had spent two days discussing the issue with Under Armour, which does seem like quite a long time for such a straightforward issue. Can girls wear them too? Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) right. Do you want to do a little bit of coding? Lovely. And uh, the issue was being corrected. As he said, I want to make sure you can wear my kicks proudly before promising something special planned for International Women's Day next year. Less of this, please, Under Armour, but more of this, please, Unstoppable duo, Riley and Stephen. Yeah. Free the Curries Five.
0: <laughs> Just free them. Free, free them. the Curries Five. Yeah, I don't think that scans particularly well. I'm going to get on the phone to um, the specials and see if they can help me out.
2: Okay, okay. Well, more news about that and other stuff next week.
0: Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the Week. It's that time of the week where we teach our kids to count the highest by looking at world politics and adding up the cocks. This approach to maths may well be another good reason I don't have children. Over in Argentina at the G20 summit, world leaders meet to discuss policy pertaining to the promotion of international... Oh wait, sorry, let's round that up. Over at the G20 summit, men meet to discuss policy pertaining to the promotion of international financial stability. In the traditional G20 family photo, there are just two women. Count them. One, two done. Our very own Theresa May and also Mm. International Monetary Fund Chief Christine Lagarde. Uh, To be fair, Angela Merkel was supposed to be there, but transport complications meant she couldn't make it. That would have brought the bird tally to a staggering three. It's 2018, people. Maths is not my strong point, but two or even three out of 37, which is the number of people in the photo, is not equality. And with Teabag looking more and more unstable, and Merkel stepping down as Germany's chancellor in 2021, the future looks phallus shaped. So you know, very like the past and the present. The highest number of women ever in the photo was five. If you're interested, and that was in 2012 and 2013. God, did you see Trump at the G20? Oh. He he's gone off the rails. I mean, he, if he was ever on them, but he was wandering about the stage the like stage he was a kid the Argent- in a player. play. The
2: Argentinian fella. He shook his hand and then he just walked off the stage. And one of his people, like, panicked and ran across the stage. And the Argentinian guy was, sorry, for the sake of podcast, sort of shrugging, right? And then you hear Trump say, Get me out of here on his bike. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I think we need more strong men like that in charge. Less women, more strong men. Hi, Hannah here. I know you're probably busy with the Christmas shopping. But just to let you know, if you've fallen out with a friend and you've got a fiver that you were going to spend on their Christmas present, but you know, fuck them, you can give that £5 to us via our Patreon site, which is www.patreon.com. And we would be really grateful because it would help us continue to make the sort of content that you appear to enjoy. Thanks very much.
0: Hello. We're joined by comedian Juliet Burton. Hey, Juliet. Hey. Thanks very much for coming in. Thank you very much for having me in. You have come to talk to us about kindness and that is a topic close to your heart because your show Butterfly Effect was all about it. So I'm going to start by asking why is the notion of kindness so important to you?
4: I think for me that there's enough unkindness in the world and I feel alone most of the time so uh, when I'm kind I feel more connected to other people other humans and when other people show me kindness they sometimes can save my life in some ways Um, so yeah last year I had a bit of a horrible year and it made me try to focus on finding a new meaning in my life and the meaning that I focus on the most was kindness thanks to mainly my family they they are very kind people Uh, my mum is anyway and my aunt who passed away in january this year and um, was diagnosed with a terminal illness last year she was one of the kindest people i know and i decided that i was going to go out on a quest to do random acts of kindness every single day and see whether it might help me feel a little more powerful in my own life because i felt powerless over all this stuff that was happening i think there's there's a lot of shit going on in the world. Am I allowed to swear? Of course, please do. There's a lot of fucking shit going on in the world right now and I think people are wary of being empathetic in case it means they get taken advantage of. At least that's something that went through my mind and I wanted to investigate that and whether kindness really is something that we need to be suspicious of and the conclusion that I have come to is it really does not matter what your motivation is for being kind and it will give you strength if you focus on kindness and the more you see kindness in other people as well. Kindness for me is it's kind of in my saving grace. I don't think I would have coped with all the awful things that were happening in the world and in my world um, in the last couple of years if I hadn't focused on kind acts.
0: And I think for a lot of people these days acts of kindness seem sort of intrinsically tied to money. So giving to charity, sticking a quiz in a homeless person's cup or buying them a brew, that kind of thing. But It doesn't always have to equate to cash, does it? Not at all.
4: This is something I'm really excited about. So I've just been doing a national tour of this show that focuses on this quest for kindness that I went on. Part of the show is uh, I like to do kind of social activism so I get the audience involved in some way. And I asked them to suggest random acts of kindness that other people could do. So um, it was like a kind of tag team across the country. So, say, like, my Scarborough audience, they all wrote down on a piece of paper, each individual person wrote down an idea for a way to be kind. Those then got passed on to my next audience in Hemel Hempstead. Hemel Hempstead ones will be passed on to Louth in Lincolnshire. It's called Dare to be Kind. And I've written all of these suggestions down. and I've got thousands and thousands of people's suggestions of random acts of kindness now. And there are ones that keep coming up again and again that may be less inventive, like complimenting strangers or smiling at strangers, which is wonderful. That's a lovely thing to do. But you could also, um, there are some people who've suggested things like washing a random person's car or going up to somebody and having a proper chat with them elderly people lots of people are talking about uh, calling into elderly neighbors especially in the winter months and asking them how they're doing and checking in on them inviting someone around for christmas dinner who might be on their own there's so many and there's real goodness in people's hearts it's just we forget about it and we forget about it in ourselves because we get so distracted by all these other things that are going on every day can I just say I'm slightly scared of
2: the idea of washing someone's was car. If they came out and I was just there with the bucket, do you have to like, tell them before you <laughs> do
3: it, or
2: do you I, just cry? They how they react you,
4: you define it in your own way. Like, the, yeah, I can understand why it might be scary. Uh, it might be scary to go up and compliment a stranger. It is scary to go up and say anything to a complete random stranger. But if we can just get over ourselves and get over the awkwardness, the fact is we're all individual humans scared and fearful and going through shit of our own. And if we see each individual person out there not as uh, something to be feared, but somebody who's going through their own crap and being able to make that connection it might just have a huge effect that you have no idea about the reason i wrote this show is because there was a guy who i flired up in edinburgh um, who back in 2012 i met him so it's only my second year of being a writer performer when i fly people up in edinburgh i, I like to chat to them i like to, get to know them i don't kind of do like a numbers game and that's because i feel really alone um, especially in that sea of people up there where you can feel completely like you're drowning mm-hmm. and nobody really cares about you um, unless you've suddenly won an award So if there's one person I'm chatting to about my show, I'm going to enthuse to them about it. I'm going to also recommend restaurants, recommend other shows, talk to them about where to go, the sights to see, because they are in that moment the most important person in the world to me, whether they come to my show or not. So there was a guy I met in 2012. He came to see my show the next day and then he came to see my show the following year because I have very loyal fans and he said that second time that he saw me he told me the first day I met him he'd been planning on committing suicide and he'd been battling cancer and been going through a really messy divorce and was convinced he was going to lose his kids and he just had enough and he felt powerless like I did as well but for him he wanted to get his power back by ending things so he said that the way that I chatted to him that day felt like the first act of kindness that anyone had shown him in a really long time and all I did was chat to him I didn't do anything special I just focused on him in that moment and he said the way that I chatted to him reached him, which was not my intention. I, th- I was being very narcissistic. I just wanted him to come see my show. <laughs> um, but but it didn't really matter what my motivation was. Um, and he said that he then felt, in his words, he felt obligated to come see my show. Nice. <laughs> which is fine by me. Again, he still came. He's
0: as- <laughs> like a three stars, to be honest. Yeah, <laughs>
4: absolutely. And then he said, this is the five star bit. He said that he found the show so uplifting that he changed his mind. And now he's still alive. That has nothing really to do with me. It was just that he saw something in me that he gravitated towards in that moment, and that's all that a small act of kindness can do. It doesn't have to be a superhero thing. It can just be you feel alone. You see somebody else who might maybe feel alone. It's a connection, isn't it? It's, it's, a, connection. it's a
3: connection to the world, I guess of yeah. you're feeling unconnected.
0: Kindness takes thought and time mm. it doesn't have to take loads of thought or loads of time but you are showing that person a little bit of thought and a little bit of time and it feels quite often in the world with how busy it is and how the news is so horrific a lot of the time that, that we don't have that left to spare so when you do give it it's, it's a generous act
4: it's a brave act people say that comedy is brave or talking about mental illness because i talk about my mental health in my shows as well um is brave and i find, i think that's a fallacy that's not true it's not brave to do comedy, it's <laughs> egocentric, um, but I love it. And talking about mental illness is not brave because there's nothing to be feared. I sincerely believe saying that talking about mental illness it, like is a courageous act it is not, not the case at all because we all need to be talking about it a lot more. It's only scary because we're not talking about it. Whereas with kindness, I think that really is, that's daring. Because it's scary to push through the awkwardness that we all feel and...
5: You
0: touched on it earlier, you said that people can be quite suspicious. If, some, if my car was clean and <laughs> Hannah was like wet in a bikini somewhere, I think I would be...
4: I mean, you put the bikini in there. I
0: did, I did. But I would be suspicious if I came downstairs yeah. and my, my car was clean. Seeing something like that would, would throw most people. Why are we so suspicious of kindness?
4: Um, it's a very good question. I think we are scared that people want something from us. Well, so many people do yes but then I every day I meet people who all they want is a little bit of human connection and I think you you get what you look for if I believe in the goodness in myself then I can see goodness in other people and it goes the other way around as well if I if I believe in the goodness on the people then it helps me find the goodness in myself
2: I was getting on a bus the other day got on the front bit of the bus and I did my Oyster card and it said insufficient funds and uh, I said to the bus driver is there anything I can do and he was like no and I said oh, I can't give you money and he said no and I said, do you know anywhere around here that charges them up? And he said, no. Right? And I was like, welcome to TFL. Yeah, so I was like, so I have to get off the bus. And he went, yeah. yeah. And at that point, a man got up, walked down, taps his Oyster card and said, don't worry, love, just get on. And I was like, you sure? Do you want the money? And he was like, no, but it's dark. And you're on your own at a bus stop. Like, why would I leave you here? Love and it. I was like, now, I don't need one pound fifty. I did as it was because I needed to tap it on my card, whereas like a homeless person possibly needs one pound fifty more than I do in that situation. But I did think you know. I'm never going to track him down and give him that one pound fifty back. But he'd be a massive, solid favour in that moment that I couldn't get on that bus.
0: I've done that a couple of times. I've had it done for me, and I've done it a couple of times. You see someone who's bought something, they think they've got more change than they have, yeah. and they go, oh, I've not got that extra quid for the coffee or whatever, and yeah. I just put the quid down. And someone's done it for me as well.
3: I had a woman in the States. I'd spent all day on my bicycle. I'd spoken to no one. There'd been nothing for miles and miles and miles, just dead mooses and vultures and stuff. And I got to this gas station, and I was practically delirious. Because it was really, really, really hot in Louisiana and I had got, I did not take enough water with me. And I got off and I was just like, oh my God. And I started chatting to this woman who was working there and she was just like, A, hey, you're crazy. And then she's like, I want to give you $10. I was like, I don't, I don't need it. It's fine. She's like, no, I'd take my $10. And I was just like, I, I honestly don't need it. It's fine. She's like, no, because you might get a flat tire and then you'll need it. you know, like, I honestly don't. But she just would not have it. She was like, "You've got to take this ten dollars off me."
4: All of those are amazing acts of kindness. But you mentioned about the money thing, yeah. And the my favourite examples. So there are two. There are two stories in my show that I that have nothing to do with money at all. The show that I've been touring begins with a story of me in King's Cross Station. I'd had some really bad news, like the kind of earth shattering news where I just felt like I couldn't, I couldn't breathe, and I was crying and sobbing. Just and this guy just walked over, gave me a tissue, smiled at me and walked away and it was the smile as well as the tissue it wasn't a oh come on pull your socks up it was just a you're not alone well as I say I
2: I fell off my bike about five years ago I'm really Hurt my leg. Not bad enough that I should have been taken to the hospital, but you know, bad enough that I did sit at the side of the road and cry. And a really old lady came and sat next to me and gave me a cuddle. That's- well, I think Aww. it was the nicest thing that's ever
0: happened to me.
4: In a way, that like, we all went after that yeah. more so than the one pound fifty from the bus. Yeah. Like
0: we all need to be. You know when you're in a, a, a club or a bar and there's a really drunk girl who's just like, you all right? Is yeah. everything all right? Yeah, drunk girl.
4: Yeah, we drunk just to be her. It's instead of seeing like a sea of strangers' faces, yeah. it's seeing all those individual little stories, like thousands of stories in that one person and being able to realise that they are on their own little journey and they're as scared and as fearful as you are. And therefore I would rather make the effort to make that connection.
2: So you're going to say that that everyone's deserving of kindness, aren't you?
4: I would say everyone's deserving of tolerance. If you're thinking about certain political world leaders or... No, I'm
2: just thinking sometimes that people are just massive bricks.
4: Yeah, no, sometimes they are. But usually they are, I believe, because they are scared themselves. They just don't realise they are.
3: Maybe everyone's deserving of understanding.
0: Yeah. I remain sceptical on that one, to be honest with you. But I, I think... You don't know that person in that moment if we're talking about a stranger. So I'd rather, for my own peace of mind, try and be kind whenever I can. And if sometimes that goes to someone who doesn't deserve it, well,
4: shit happens. Juliet, where can people find you? Well, my address is... uh, (laughs) And I'm on Twitter at Juliet Burton, J-U-L-I-E-T-T-E-B-U-R-T-O-N, JulietBurton.co.uk, Instagram, Juliet underscore Burton and facebook Julia burton writer performer and it all goes to me
0: and that's got gig info and everything on it as well
4: yes my website has mainly the gig info but if anyone messages me directly then i can tell you exactly where i'm going to be performing next but yeah i've also got a podcast positive mental attitude um which is in association with rethink mental illness the mental health charity um is a podcast all about the positive aspects of mental health conditions
0: brilliant thank you so much for coming in to talk to us thank you so much for having me i love you Wondering what to do for Christmas with your pals, loved ones, members of the same office? Then how about a trip out to see our faces? You know it's the right thing to do. Our next and final gig of the year is December the 16th at Leicester Square Theatre. And we have got Lolly Ed Fopé. We've got Laura Bates. We've got Susie Ruffle, And we have got Felicity Ward. It's going to be cracking. You can get tickets and find out more information on our page of Sarah's website, which is www.sarahmillican.co.uk forward slash standard hyphen issue. See you there. Oh, hey there, Mickey here. For this week's Sunday Chops, I caught up with the frankly marvellous Barbara Lissicki comedian and fierce disability activist. We chatted about all sorts of stuff, particularly what she and various allies got up to in their ongoing quest to change the narrative around people with disabilities who were so often treated with pity or looked at as lesser. Which is, of course, bullshit. And you can work out exactly what Barbara thought of that attitude simply by revelling in the glory that is the piss on pity t-shirt and the accompanying campaign. To whet your appetite for Sunday, here's a particularly choice anecdote about some of the brilliant and ultimately law-making activism Barbara got up to with DAM, the Disabled People's Direct Action Network, and how that aimed to alter the way society regards people with disabilities.
6: We said, we're going to create a representation that doesn't make you feel like that, that makes you look at us and say, wow... That's powerful. And that's why, you know, when we were, I mean, because I was part of setting up down the Disabled People's Direct Action Network, and um, we had two campaigns running concurrently, but we were very focused. One campaign, and this was in the mid 1990s, from 1992, we'd we'd mobilised all these thousands of disabled people to come and protest against Telethon. And we said, what are we going to do with this? We've, You know, we've got all these people together. can't let that come to waste. <laughs> what do we do next? So we set up Dan and we were very clear. We said we're going to campaign for accessible transport and a law that makes it illegal or unlawful to discriminate against disabled people because we had no legal recourse to any kind of discrimination. You know, we had, as Dan, we did loads of actions like there was a cafe in Camden Town who chucked out two wheelchair users because they said they took up too much space. Fucking and then the next time they went back, so they didn't quite get the message, they went there again for a cup of tea and a, you know, currant bun. And the, the proprietor had actually put a notice up above the counter in this cafe that had a wheelchair symbol and a line through it, like a no entry symbol or out. a road sign. I wish I was joking. I'm not. This was real and so they got in touch with us and said what do we do now and we said oh well you know don't worry about it we'll get some people together so we were quite imaginative in our actions because what we did was we got like 30 people together in a couple of days we went down to camden town and we had a picnic across the doorway of this cafe (laughs) and you know a nice gingham tablecloth like tea and cakes and we did it properly But people couldn't get in the door, obviously. But we also had flyers that we handed out to people explaining why we were there and what the problem was. And we were demanding that firstly, um, and most importantly, that the guy put the sign down. Secondly, that he apologised to the two people he'd kicked out, but also to the rest of us, and that he he wouldn't do it again. And so he lost business for several hours that day. One of our chants was, we're down, we'll be back, get used to it. And... We did go back. We were organised enough to be able to bring people together at pretty short notice and go and take action where it was needed. And we did it in loads of places. We did it at the Holloway Odeon. And Jeremy Corbyn came and joined our protest because it was in his constituency. Because young, young, some young disabled people who used to go to that cinema, they got a new manager in. They'd been going there two years, these kids. They got a new manager in and all of a sudden he decided there were a fire risk and there were too many of them and he didn't want them there anymore. So we just went, on a Monday evening, we went and blocked the doors of the cinema. The the bouncers roughed us up, I think they didn't care. And we just made a human chain around all the doors, explained to people again why we were there. We got the press involved. We always got really, really good press coverage, you know, print media and TV and stuff and radio. And um, we gradually started to bring out evidence to members of the public about the the type and level of discrimination
0: mm-hmm. that disabled people were facing if you want to hear more from barbara and trust me you really do the woman's a human firecracker then tune in on sunday for the full chops also on sunday barbara's performing at HistFest, a brand new three-day festival of history taking place in london and around the uk and featuring a cracking mix of talks panel discussions workshops and live performances Barbara's event is called 10 T's: A Brief History of Disability Activism, and that is told through the medium of protest t-shirts, including the aforementioned Piss on Pity number. She's on at 12.30pm at the Hatton in London. The bloody lovely Dr Fern Riddell is there too, as well as loads of other brilliant women, and, you know, men as well. Histfest Fest starts on Friday, December the 7th, and you can find out more at histfest.com. And you can follow Barbara on Twitter at wonder_barbara. underscore Barbara.
3: Hello, Jen here. All we want for Christmas is for you to follow us on Twitter, please. <laughs> or indeed, Instagram. We don't ask much. Or Facebook. I quite like a car. <laughs> or just subscribe to this podcast. That would be lovely. You can find us on Twitter, at Standard Issue UK. Facebook, whatever that is, then Standard Issue Magazine. Facebook.com forward slash Standard Issue Magazine. Cheers, Mick. And on Instagram, we are Standard Issue Podcast. Thank you very much.
2: What's Instagram? Hi, I'm in London, joined by Emma MacLeiser and Sarah Breen, the authors of, well, you're journalists originally, aren't you? Yeah. And now authors of best-selling books, Oh My God, What a Complete Ashling! and now The Importance of Being Aisling, which are both published over here now after being quite the sensation <laughs> in Ireland. Being in a room with two Irish women, I need to say, Irish women are having an absolutely phenomenal year. Aren't they?
1: Yeah. on the gals. We're not doing too badly.
2: <laughs> on both sides of the border. Early in the year, Lisa McGee's Dairy Girls. Oh, really, yes. like I think it's Channel 4's most successful new sitcom. And it's coming about. out
1: on Netflix in the US yeah. now. Yeah. Yeah. For, for it's a, so funny. We're so, big fans. So yeah.
2: Obviously, you repealed the 8th, which is yeah. Yeah. incredibly yeah. That successful. Was good crack. <laughs> Northern Ireland, moving some way closer to a little bit. Definitely, creepy, yeah. creeping closer. I think a
1: lot of the momentum yeah. from Repeal the 8th is kind of helping a bit yeah. to push.
2: Although she's not Irish. Lena Cartmill who's doing some great stuff at, at the, the gate. gate. Yeah. And the hockey team did tremendously well. Yes.
1: she yes.
7: champions.
2: Yeah. Do you feel like you're, the Irish women are on a wave of something?
1: Well I'd like to think so. I think so <laughs> yeah and we, we have been kind of included in as you said this kind of wave of, of Irish women that are doing really well so it's kind of unbelievable to us. <laughs>
7: it's, it's an honour to be included in the same breath as all those women, yeah, I have to say. Yeah. And even to be here with books out in the UK, I mean, that was something we never thought would happen in a million years.
2: Another reason I think I'm so proud in this year is I, I spent some time with Marion Keyes, who is quite oh. A, oh, lucky a, a tremendous <laughs> individual.
7: She's a big fan of yours, isn't yeah. she? And also of her. I mean, yeah. she was one, she's our sort of joint favourite author. And she, when we wrote our book, I, when, when it was finished, we imagined someday
1: getting it into her hands we were just i remember i think us saying god imagine marion keys knew that we had written a book and then next thing she was on her, about U- it. on her youtube channel holding our book saying i love this go out and buy it so it's been yeah a wild ride yeah. she is
2: just a singularly she, hilarious person she's one a, a dote
7: yeah. <laughs> yeah she's an extreme dote and such a champion of other women and other writers and is not afraid to big people up, which I just think is a yeah, mark of an very generous. woman.
2: Yeah. Probably the best place to start is if you can explain to us who Ashling is. She's a character
7: that Eimear and I sort of conceived when we used to live together in this little flat in Stony Stonybatter in Dublin. And we used to spend a lot of that time hungover. We were in our early 20s, lying around under blankets, watching reality TV, talking absolute nonsense. And one day we started talking about this certain type of girl that we'd sort of seen on the streets around us, in work, in our friend groups.
1: Some of the first traits that we started identifying in this particular girl was she's the one you see walking really fast to work, carrying her lunchbox Tupperware in like a battered Brown Thomas, which is a kind of a high-end department store in Dublin, wearing her Skechers, walking really fast, getting her steps in and gaining some Weight Watchers points. And we were like, "What? what is this girl called? We all know one. And she's the one who's keeping the brown mascara industry going.
7: She's never dyed her hair. Yeah. She has every single loyalty card that's available to anyone because loyalty cards are basically free money. She's the opposite to us in some ways. Like, she'd never hoover up coins rather than pick them up. Like, she's never hidden behind, like, the couch to avoid the TV license
1: inspector. We've right. never done that. What are you talking oh, about? You? Yeah. <laughs> she's, she does everything very by the book. She's really sensible. She's really pragmatic. When we first meet her, she's had the same boyfriend for, like, nine years. And, and
7: she, yeah, the thing that we thought we decided about her is that she's kind of living this life of quiet desperation, waiting for the boyfriend to propose. You know those girls who get like a French French manicure every couple of weeks yeah. because they're going on a on weekend away, and they're just waiting for that question to be popped. So that's how we came up with the idea for her. And when we started explaining her to our friends, everyone was like, "Oh, I know Ashling, or I sit beside Ashling in work, or I am Ashling." And Ibra made a Facebook group so we could share our Ashlingisms
1: amongst our friends because we were texting them together to each other. It was around the time of the uh, Angelina Brad. Jennifer Aniston controversy, so it was like Ashling is firmly Team Jen. Yes, (laughs) absolutely. So then, yeah, Emma made the Facebook group, and our friends immediately
7: joined, and then slowly a couple of other people joined once word got out, but we could always trace it back to, you know, somebody who knew us. And then one day somebody joined who wasn't in the group, and then
1: I think you were in a pub somewhere. And I heard two strangers at the bar talking about somebody and describing her as, oh, she's such an Ashling. Um I was like, oh my God, it's it's in the lexicon. We've done it. Ashling is out there. Um, like, we just called her Ashling because it's a, a common Irish name. It wasn't after anyone in particular. Yeah. It's become almost a descriptor now. Short out like, for this specific
7: type yeah, of girl. And I mean, you have her in the UK as well, absolutely. Like, I think all bar one is probably where Ashling would go. Um, and she's been
1: compared to Bridget Jones. Is that
2: helpful or is that a hindrance? I think
1: it's helpful in the UK because Bridget is such a good touchstone for people to to relate to but Bridget's you know very british and Ashling's very irish but there are enough traits that Ashling has that are universal and relatable that even though our writing is quite irish and Ashling's a very irish girl people can still relate to her and go no i know i know who that is and i can identify that person And also I think the Irish Bridget Jones just sounds like something I would absolutely want to
7: read.
2: I've spent a lot of time in Ireland and also got Irish family so a lot of the verbiage I get but you have actually included a sort of a glossary to help people round some of the language that you use in it.
7: Yeah there's some of the lingo that we actually had to change some bits as well and yeah there's some of the lingo that mightn't have been so familiar to UK audiences. Things like West Coast Cooler is a very popular drink in Ireland it's kind of like a wine spritzer or something yeah very low
1: alcohol content yeah Actually, you can put away about five or six without being too worried hangover <laughs> yeah. hang over them and then she got
7: to alternate them with water as yeah. well and um, so we had to explain that and there was a couple of other things as well I yeah guess. like
1: there's like gaa which is you know the national sport in ireland yeah. gaelic athletics athletic association and a lot of references to that had to kind of be just anglicized a bit so that people weren't reading it going what are this pair on about uh. yeah and I think we had to change a few a uh, few Irish celebrities who have never quite made it over the Irish Sea, so we had to change a few names there. And um, some
7: corn snacks. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you guys don't have a delicious um, crisp here called meanies. Uh, we changed that to monster munch, so yeah. there was a few little things that we had to alter, but nothing
1: major. Nothing major, no major story points or anything. Now, you created this together, but you've also
2: <laughs> written it together. Personally, as someone who writes, I don't know if I could work with somebody else. How's <laughs> it been for you? It's been great.
1: Like, we have never written a book together or individually before, uh, so we have nothing to compare it to. Right. And the
7: best thing is you only have to write half a book if you write with somebody yeah. else. Yeah. Not that we're lazy or anything.
1: So we just devised a way of doing it. I mean, we signed the book deal. We had to write it. We uh, would signed on the dotted line. Another
2: fine mess we got ourselves into. <laughs> oh, well, I read that you, that, the, that you were Googling how to write a book. Well, nobody point? is
7: born knowing how to yeah. write a book, and we didn't go to, like, book writing school. So, yeah, we had to. And our publisher in Ireland, who originally approached us, they don't normally publish fiction. So when they asked us to put something about the character of Ashley on paper, we think that they sort of meant... You know one of those, like, little gift books that you might buy... On Christmas Eve, you know, vignettes or little jokes or whatever, and um, so maybe we,
1: a hardback with illustrations, yeah, like just some Ashlingisms, you know. Yeah. You'd
7: get it in Oxfam in January, like. yeah. yeah. Um, but then, you know, we saw it as an opportunity to bring Ashling to a wider audience, and our background is media and writing. We always said, "Oh, wouldn't it be great to write a book?" And then we thought, okay, maybe this is our opportunity. Maybe this is the time we need to sit down and write a book. And could we do it together? But we googled can people write books together, and there are some people <laughs> do do it. Duos
1: out there. Yeah. The way we did it though was to figure out what was going to happen in the first few chapters. I flipped a, a coin, coin to see who would write the first chapter, and we went from there. And it just worked. We have been friends for a long time, and we have a very similar tone and a style of writing and sense of humour. So when we sent the first batch of chapters to our editors, they were like oh we can't tell who wrote what or where Emer ends and Sarah starts so that was great. And yeah. because
7: we know this character for ten years it's not like is picking up my thoughts, it's all written from Ashling's point of view, so she's picking up Ashling's thoughts and we know her so well that we know how she would react in any situation in front of any person, so it's the, it's the only way we know how to do it the first book was really really successful in Ireland and then we got the deal to do two more books and when we went to start the second book we didn't want to change the formula too much. Like, Emer didn't even have Word on her computer. We were doing it on Google Docs. <laughs> other authors find that very stressful because there's fancy software you can get and everything. But we didn't want to change the formula too much because as mad as it sounds, it just, it worked for us. It worked, us. yeah.
2: Can you go out for a drink in Ireland without hearing about other people's friends? <laughs> <laughs>
7: um, yeah, it, it's it be a new thing now that people kind of approach us when we're together. When
1: we're together, we're a little bit recognisable I think but when we're apart we're not really but yeah we do get a lot of uh, suggestions as to what should happen to Ashling or, you know, Oh my friend's such an Ashling or Did you write that about me? I feel like I'm that Ashley you know, Ademer
7: takes all the suggestions to heart. I'm always like, like whenever
1: anyone says, people might be like, I think you know, Ashling should build a house and I'm like, Oh that that's what we have to write about that now. Yeah, if right? <laughs> we don't put a house
7: build into the into the book, they're all gonna be so disappointed, they're not gonna buy it, they're not gonna enjoy it, we're gonna just ruin it for them. And we're then Sarah's a, a
1: voice of reason and she's like, Calm down. Yeah.
7: But at the same time I'm like, Oh my god, maybe they're right. <laughs> because you don't want to disappoint people, that's what happens when people take a character into their hearts you know, they want the best for her and it's our job to throw obstacles at her. I mean, we want the best for her ultimately. Yeah. But it can't be an easy ride.
2: Do you have a timetable at
1: all for when people can look out for a third book? We are due to deliver it in Ireland by the end of next April, I think, isn't it? Yes. Oh, I start crying.
7: <laughs> yeah. Although you're due to deliver something else. I'm due to deliver a baby in February.
1: Wow. Um, <laughs> but,
7: so famous last word, we always say this, we'll just get loads of it done before Christmas and then it'll be all fine. We we'll, always make it work.
1: Yeah, we'll make it work.
7: We're journalists. <laughs> no, you know,
1: you know, exactly we're know, I. We're used to, to
2: deadline, yeah. yeah. Although I find most journalists, I know, go, "Oh, the deadline's tomorrow. I best
1: crackle." Well, That's be us. us. Yeah. yeah. In,
7: in the beginning of April. I'm not sure when it's going to be out in the UK.
1: Possibly this time next year for the third book, going on the schedule that the, the first two have come out. So this first two have just come out here in paperback together. So it's like this lovely little package. <laughs>
0: <laughs> jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. We have got a voucher that will save you money today. I'm really bad at scanning, (laughs) out! Someone help me out. But that is true. We do have a voucher that will save you money on our gigs. That is running through until... December the 16th. That is running through until December the 16th. And if you put SI241, that's SI, and then the numbers 2, the number 4, and the number 1, at the end of your checkout process... Basket... Promo (laughs) at the end of your checkout basket promo, then you will get two tickets for the price of one on either our December gig or our January gig. Stone the crows. (laughs) Stone the crows. Crows dead as a bonus.
5: (laughs) You play ball like a girl.
3: Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. I'm joined by Kelly Simmons, director of the Women's Professional Game from the Football Association. Hi Kelly. Good evening. We have just been at a Mars Just Play event, which is an initiative run by Mars and the Football Association designed to get more people involved in football there was a very fancy simulated penalty shootout going on there and there were a lot of men <laughs> who'd uh, lined up to have a shot at it with women's football we're kind of told that it's young people really that are pushing the game forward at the moment and it is quite a young sport itself if we had done that with a younger crowd would we have seen that ratio of male to females participating
8: i think the best person there was farrah williams who's got well well over 100 plus caps for England who is showing everybody how to do it so it's great to have Farrah there promoting the Lionesses and the women's game but yeah I mean increasingly particularly young girls but increasingly girls and women are playing football in their thousands and thousands and um, what this initiative is about is just aimed at women who maybe can't commit to playing in a team or don't want to and all that that entails in terms of commitment and playing every week this is about when you want to play football turn up play get your your fix of football have fun and it's very kind of recreational and flexible and And we know that thousands of women are getting involved in just-play centres across the country, from mums groups to walking football to to young women, enjoying it in college and university, so proving
3: really popular. I think, you know, in in younger people, obviously, I think we are sort of fostering an environment at the moment, or a culture in sport in general that is more friendly towards younger girls, is more sort of normalised, they see it more. But what do you think the challenges are in getting more young girls into football?
8: I think previously, previous generations, girls were channelled into what was deemed to be traditional female sports, so there were cultural barriers. I think they're being broken down, the success of the Lionesses, women's super league going professional, the visibility of women and girls' football, the opportunities in the schools mean that this generation coming through think it's OK to play football and, and to have fun or you know, or to become the best they can be and be a professional footballer, and I think that message and those opportunities are getting out there wider and wider. So I think we've sort of broken down a lot of those cultural barriers now. It's just about making sure that those girls and women who want to play, there's a really good, relevant, appropriate activity for them in their local community. Whether that's young girls, we've got a whole network, 800-plus Wildcat centres across the country to get the right introduction for 5 to 11-year-olds, or that's you know groups of women that just want to turn up and play like the Mars and FA Just Play programme.
3: Are you seeing that in the professional side of things? Are you seeing that the talent pool is getting better and better and better?
8: Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, um, you know, England got to uh, you know number two in the world. We're going into the World Cup next year as one of the favourites. That is because more and more girls and women are playing football. That's because the league is really strong and competitive. That's because of the work that we're doing with the England youth teams. Uh, you know, there's a whole range of things. But there's no doubt that one of the factors for sustained England success And and club success over the long term is to get as many girls playing the game and that will strengthen your, your pathway through to the top.
3: I was at an event last week. A Ticketmaster report came out. The State of Play, of course, you'll be familiar with that. And what the findings of the report suggested was that actually women's cricket is just edging a little bit in terms of getting women to go and watch the sport. So it seems to be a little bit more popular with female fans who aren't necessarily interested in the men's game but they'll go and watch the women's game. What do you think football can do to make them more interested in the women's game?
8: Well, we know that there's a real mixed audience comes to the women's games. You see a lot of families, you see a lot of mums, dads, young children a lot of dads and daughters um, we know from some of the research that it's an opportunity for dads as well as mums to sort of connect and support their their daughter i mean their, their football experience as a player or a fan they've got a lot of young families coming to the games we're seeing increased attendances at the lionesses games you know we had a sellout uh, last week at rotherham uh, we had twenty-five thousand at st mary's you know we're seeing big crowds we're getting you know the big games are getting sort of between one three thousand in the women's super leagues and a lot of those are families so i think you know i know the clubs very much see it as an opportunity maybe to offer football to maybe families that can't afford to go to the men's game maybe don't want to take their young children or just want to follow the women's team so i think you know we are getting lots of women come to the games but we know that in women's sport i think it's a myth about women's sport is watched by women it's watched by as many men as it is women and we're also seeing a lot of Uh, traditional kind of male football fans coming over and following the women's club too
3: so at the same event i was at last week i was england and arsenal player alex scott was there and she said that women's football was on the cusp of something really special what do england fans have to be excited about at the moment
8: well we're going into world cup so uh, we've got a very well we've got potentially got three incredible years that's because next year we're going to the world cup if we can finish in the top three European sides, we qualify for the Olympics. and We've got an agreement with the home nations to put a GB team in, and then early December we'll get a decision from UEFA on whether we host Euro twenty twenty one. So I think if you're an England stroke GB football fan, you've got a lot to be excited about over the next three years. And well, Scotland did fantastically well. But as a Welsh fan, I'd still be really excited because I like think Jane Ludlow and the Wales team—they're in our group. They came so close to qualifying, they are progressing so well, they've got a fantastic manager, great group of players, Scotland, wow, how exciting for Scotland, you know, qualified for their first Women's World Cup I believe it is, some great players, Kim Little who's injured at the moment plays for Arsenal, one of the best players in the world, got some really, really good players, so I think you know there's lots to be excited about for Great Britain, not, not just England. You know, the players are being developed right across the uh, GB
3: Kelly, thank you very much We're joined by Farrah Williams, Reading and England player Farah, thanks for joining us Hi, no worries You have, apparently, I hope this is right otherwise this will be embarrassing 168 caps for England Hello. 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 Thanks Wikipedia <laughs> and 5 for Great Britain
5: uh, Oh, I don't know, maybe, maybe you're right 4 or 5, yeah. I'll take 5
3: All right, we'll we'll trust Wikipedia on this one. It's proven to be a reliable source thus far. Obviously, we're going into a World Cup next year and Phil Neville was challenging players to compete for a place in their squad in the last week or so. So what is that competition like at the moment?
5: Yeah, it's really good. I think, you know, our under-20s had a successful World Cup in the summer. Some real good players there that, you know, Phil's obviously watched and... Yeah, started to introduce to the senior team I think the senior team the squad's really big at the moment lots of competition and WSL is more competitive now than it ever has been so the competition is massive I think you know I think feels, going to have a headache come next summer with the amount of players that are actually really coming to form at the minute and yeah really kicking to be in that squad for next year
3: I mean you've got as as I've now learnt 170 caps for England so you've been doing this for a while who should we be looking out for in those sort of younger players who are trying to come through
5: Yeah, there's lots. I think if we're talking real young, I'd say Georgia Stanway. She's had a a real good start to the season with Man City. She had a really good World Cup with the under-20s. So Georgia Stanway's a real young one that's, you know, really close to being a big part of the squad. I think Nikita Paris has come to form. I think, you know, she's had a few years now in the WSL and with England. But I think she's really established herself now as a, you know, as a senior player. And at the minute is, you know, firing on all cylinders. And for me, she's one to watch at the moment. To be fair, Jordan Nobbs and Jill Scott, I think Jordan Nobbs at Arsenal now has been put in a new position, which for me is a position that I've always wanted her to see, see her in. I think she's a fantastic goalscorer with lots of energy and I think she's able to do that in a position now she's playing at Arsenal. And Jill Scott has been consistent throughout many years for England and you know still showing that she has that consistency. So there's just a, a few of the players that, for me, going into the World Cup are going to be key for us next year. In the last few
3: years, England women's team has been considerably more successful than the men's team, but we've seen something of a shift under Gareth Southgate in the last couple of years, and yesterday the men's team qualified for the next stage of the Nations League. How does it feel to be in the England camp at the moment? Is, is there like any kind of competition? Are they stealing your thunder now?
5: No, I think it's a happy place to be if you're English. I think you know I'm an England supporter. take out the play inside of it. I think I want our men and women's team at every level to be successful and and in every sport, it's great that they're doing well for me, you know, as I say I'm an England supporter so, you know, it used to be frustrating watching our men's team and With the amount of the quality we have within our squads over the years that have never been able to come together and be successful and now we're seeing a really enjoy exciting enjoyable young english team where they actually want to play for england and, and be successful and they proved that in the world cup and get into the semi-final and now they're in another semi-final you know not even a year on so it's fantastic for the english game and the women you know we've been getting to semi-finals now for the last three tournaments so we're also in a good place and it's good that all the English teams at every level are in good places. It's,
3: it's a great time to be an England supporter, absolutely. no, I totally agree with you. We've got the new structure of the Women's League at a domestic level. Have you seen much difference
5: in the talent and the competition? I mean, it, 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 the, the structure's obviously there. I think the, the, the Super League we tried to do in the summer and tried to take it a little bit away from when the Men's League ran to try and get some more supporters and at the time it worked successfully for us and helped us going into major tournaments I think now we've brought it back to run parallel with the men's league I just think it gives us more stability we have a game every week so we you know we're not trying to squash fixtures in and and have three games a week so I think the structure of it at the minute is is run really well and you know will lead us right into the world cup so at the minute it's, it's running perfectly fine.
3: I do have to ask and it's unfortunately quite a cheesy question but obviously we're going into the world cup next year there's a lot to play for because you've got that potential olympic spot up for grabs as well farrah is football coming home
5: <laughs> is football coming well, i hope so i hope it's coming home it'll be fantastic if we get the opportunity again i think the fact that yeah 2021 is the it after the Olympics, so it'll be fantastic as i say when we hosted it in 2005 Probably the England national team probably wasn't in a place where, you know, the women's team were that successful and able to gather the crowds in. I think the England team now, if they were to bring it home and and have a tournament here, I think the talent that will be on show, you know, in four or five years' time, plus the crowd that we've grown over the years, it'll be fantastic. Uh, Thank you very much.
7: funded issue
8: for all women.